1: An artificial pancreas could revolutionize the treatment of diabetes. How close are we? Joining us to discuss developing the artificial pancreas for patients with diabetes is pediatric endocrinologist and professor of medicine at Stanford University, Dr. Bruce Buckingham. Dr. Buckingham, welcome to ReachMD. Glad to be here. You know, there's no one that wants an artificial pancreas more than myself because most of the listeners know that I have type 1 diabetes for a zillion years and. Start off by giving us an idea of how the artificial pancreas is being designed and how will it function.
2: Well, today I think the, most of the emphasis is on using a, uh, one of the continuous glucose sensors which go into the subcutaneous space and then that data would be transmitted by a radio frequency channel, an RF channel, to a um, device which could be the pump or could be a, a handheld device. Which would then have obtain that information on the glucose values and then put that through an algorithm which would determine if, how rapidly the blood sugar was going up or going down, and that would then determine how much insulin needs to be delivered, and then that information would either be on on the device, which was a pump or be transmitted to a pump that was being worn uh, as perhaps a patch pump or a what we call tethered pump so it 's using devices which are currently available, uh, they're just not linked together.
1: So how close are we to developing a fully automated system and will this algorithm have so many, uh, I say, uh, safety checks that it may not be truly, you know, automated?
2: Well, there are probably a number of steps to go through and the limitations are probably the accuracy of the sensors and I think from an FDA point of view, Their concern would be that, say, a sensor was reading high, and then it was telling the algorithm to deliver too much insulin that could result in in low blood glucose levels. Um, And the the main problems we're seeing are in the uh, delays that are intrinsic to a subcutaneous glucose sensor and the delays in the onset of insulin action. Even our most rapid-acting insulins really take uh, 20 to 30 minutes to get a, uh, to half activity and, and up to 45 minutes to get to full activity. So it, it takes a, even a rapid-acting insulin a while to begin working. So if you put in a 10 to 15-minute delay in the sensor signal and then another 20-minute delay in the insulin action, when someone begins to eat, the insulin delivery is, is behind uh, the uh, the rise in the glucose.
1: Well, tell us what you're doing with your research at Stanford University. Tell the listeners what you're doing, at least specifically in, in your area of, of expertise.
2: Well, w- one of the major concerns, and, and I think one of the real needs, is um, to prevent uh, severe loads overnight and to prevent nocturnal hypoglycemia and seizures and Uh, 75% of seizures actually occur at night. And I think one of the problems in trying to achieve uh, really tight control is is a a fear of uh, if you keep things tight at night that you may get too low at night. So um, our approach has been that one of the first steps will be we'll have the continuous sensor monitoring the glucose values overnight. So we've been doing a number of studies in in, uh, uh, adolescents and young adults where uh, they're wearing a sensor at night and when we have five algorithms that vote when someone's going to potentially be low and it shuts off the insulin delivery for up to two
1: hours. Well does that lead to rebound hyperglycemia? I know that in one of the studies I saw that for every minute that you stop your pump your blood sugar goes up one milligram per deciliter so that's another 120 points.
2: First of all what, what we do is when the blood sugar has gone past the nadir and is on its way up, so it's gone past, it's begun to come up, then we, we turn the pump back on again at that point in time. So, as you know, sensors are very good at looking at trends and directions. And so once we've gotten, we've gotten to the bottom and are on our way up, then we allow the, the pump to start back on again without suspending it. for for 90 or 120 minutes.
1: Hey, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I'm speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Bruce Buckingham. We are discussing the development of the artificial pancreas. Well, Bruce, let's talk about uh, the FDA and their involvement in this process. I know that uh, they have to be notified up front so that when these devices get close to approval, they're up to snuff on things. How's that going? Well,
2: it a, uh, it's a long process. <laughs> so, yeah, each um, step in, in, that we um, come up with a new algorithm or, or new software or, or new hardware has to be approved by them. And right now, uh, almost all our studies have been in clinical research centers where we're obtaining a reference glucose value every half hour, and, and we have a physician at the bedside uh, closely monitoring the patients. Um, so uh, they are carefully supervised. We um, are uh, planning to submit to the FDA to use this pump shut off at night in an outpatient setting uh, next year in, a, in a, a randomized trial, and that I think would be one of the first studies in the United States where you're linking the sensor and the pump and allowing um, the the sensor to um, to turn off the pump if there's a risk for hypoglycemia. Now, in in Europe, um, the VO system by Medtronic has been approved where there if you reach a threshold glucose value, say of 50 or 60, it will automatically turn the pump off if you don't respond to the alarms.
1: And does it, does it go back on at two hours?
2: Right. It's a fixed suspension for two hours.
1: I see. So your research is interesting because it, it, it puts a little bit more thought into turning it off, not just for a set fixed time period.
2: One of the issues is when you stop your basal insulin, that insulin is still around for, you know, 60 to, to, to 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's one reason why I don't think we see a big rebound in blood sugars afterwards after turning the pump on because you still have some residual insulin. And that's why I think the predictive alarm to turn off ahead of time uh, to prevent you from getting low is, uh, is, has been our approach.
1: Now, all three of the continuous glucose monitors available now have these uh, trend arrows and predictive alarms. Give our listeners an idea of, of how they work.
2: All the sensors um, look at the the rate of change of the glucose, and so um, if the glucose is going more than between one to two milligrams per dl per minute, which means in if your blood sugar was a hundred. Uh, 20 minutes later, you could be below 80, uh, that will give you one arrow, and, and it, you'd get two arrows or uh, a vertical rate of change, depending upon your system, if it's over two milligrams per DL per minute. So that means in 20 minutes, if you were 100, you could potentially be below 60. So the, the sensor is always looking at the, the trend of glucose values, and if you... Have a trend where you're predicted to be low in 20 or 30 minutes. It can actually alarm and tell you, uh, you know, that you're going to be low. And if you can use that to one test, and a lot of times, uh, since there is some lag in the sensor measurements, by the time you test, you actually are low. But even if you aren't low, and your blood sugar was say 90 or 100 and you had a, a couple of arrows pointing downward, you would want to treat that, and then you can prevent a low. So you might just need to take 10 grams of carbohydrate instead of the usual 15 or 20 and sort of ward off that low. So it's, a, it's nice to be able to actually treat a low before it happens.
1: Tell us a little bit more insight on what goes into developing the algorithm. I mean, I would imagine these algorithms would have to be individualized for their own patients' sensitivity to insulin and things like that.
2: The Several basic algorithms out there, and uh, the Medtronic MiniMed is uh, called a PID algorithm, a proportional integral derivative algorithm, which, um, and and it now has uh, a measure of knowing how much insulin has been delivered, and knowing that that insulin is going to continue to act for a period of time. It it provides insulin feedback to help moderate. Uh, future insulin doses, and they've been pretty successful with that uh, in uh, studies in Yale and the uh, City of Hope. Um, the uh, other approach is called model predictive control, where you have a model of the insulin action, and when you begin to s- detect a meal coming on, you can sort of predict what the glucose values are going to be following the meal. And so... Um, and it can t- all the systems continually update themselves. So whatever they predicted, as they get new information, they can readjust and, and determine uh, how much more or less insulin to deliver based upon what the effect of what they've done, what they've done has uh, done on the blood glucose. Now, the third... Uh, component of this sometimes is an algorithm that incorporates another hormone, say glucagon. And so in Boston, N-Dabiano in has been using a system where um, they have two pumps, one delivering insulin and one delivering glucagon, and when they see the blood sugar projected to get low, they give a little bit of glucagon to prevent the low from happening, and that's been pretty successful. And there's been other talks about having another pump that would deliver simulant, which would delay the um, onset of um, the the rise in blood sugar following a meal, which would allow, uh, because it's a more gradual increase, would allow the uh, system to really keep up with the meal disturbance, and, and that may be very helpful.
1: In closing, Bruce, if you had your druthers, if all the technology was perfect, how do you envision at some time in the future, I won't hold you to the time, a artificial pancreas?
2: Well, I, I think it'll develop in stages. So you'll, you'll have these initial pump shutoffs to prevent lows, and then I think it'll go to a treat to range, well, where if someone forgets to give an insulin bolus for a meal and their blood sugar is going up, the system will kick in and prevent the blood sugar from going too high, because I, I know you haven't, but some of my adolescents sometimes <laughs> forget to give a meal bolus. And, and this will be a way to, to dampen that big swing in the blood sugar that they see. And then it would have the shutoff to prevent low, so it would sort of treat to range. And I think with the sensor inaccuracies that you, you'll first need to, to target maybe a blood sugar of 140 or something, and then you have a 70 milligram per dl range before you get to 70 to um, prevent the sensor-driven system from causing any lows, even if the sensor was a little bit inaccurate. So if you don't aim for perfection and you you, you aim for a blood sugar of 140, which would be an A1C of, a, what, about 6.8, um, that would be pretty good.
1: That does sound good. Boy, not aiming for perfection. i got to tell my wife that when I'm doing my honeydew list. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, pediatric endocrinologist and professor of medicine at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, Dr. Bruce Buckingham. Dr. Buckingham, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse.
0: My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment. Visit us at
3: reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP 1.
2: Is it a robot?
3: No. (laughs) GLP 1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP 1 works in a glucose dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it
2: important?
3: Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes, and like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.